and uh, gather for Children's Church. And uh, Stacy and Ebony, I think, are taking you down. And the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> We're continuing in our sermon series, All Things New, Hope at the Revelation of King Jesus. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles out on the front table. You can grab one of those if you'd like to uh, have that in the text uh, for us this morning. And then also, if you don't have a Bible, just take that one with you. That's our gift to you. Um, all right. Well, we've been walking through this book, and we are about halfway through, so hang with us. We're in the midst of the kind of difficult sections here, but uh, walking through uh, this book one, one sort of chapter at a time, a little bit at a time. So, um, <clears throat> so there's a show on the History Channel called Alone. Anyone seen this show? All right, all right. A few of you have. Uh, normally, I, I don't make, uh, make it a habit to recommend things on the History Channel. <laughs> it's basically a fiction channel, uh, not really history, but uh, that's another sermon for another time. Uh, but Alone is actually kind of a fun show. Uh, so the premise of this show, Alone, is uh, that there's 10 participants, and they are sent into the wilderness by themselves, and the last one to tap out wins. You get 10 items. Uh, you, are, you are given 10 items to go out into the wilderness. And uh, so like you have to find uh, shelter, build your own shelter. You've got to find food. You've got to figure out how to find food. Uh, and uh, everyone has a different strategy and it's kind of fun to watch. Some people choose uh, to find food first and then they don't have shelter right away and they're really terrified and you know, because there's like bears at least the last season, there was grizzly bears, and it was wild. Uh, but others choose to build a shelter first, and then they're like running out of food, and uh, malnutrition sets in, and they have to tap out because they can't survive any longer. Uh, it's a fun show, a little wild and crazy, but uh, the, the real question is, like, which 10 items are you going to take with you to survive? Uh, and if I was to go on this show, I'd just ask Derek which 10 items he would suggest. <laughs> Because that's the only way we could survive. Uh, but the, the, the reality is you've got to have a strategy going in. Having a plan and knowing how to survive in the wilderness is really, really important. Well, for us, this text is going to showcase to us that the church exists in a kind of wilderness. That we are living in a wilderness right now. And we need the skills to know as the church, how do we survive the wilderness that we're in right now? How will we survive this wilderness? To survive the wilderness, I'm going to suggest that we need three things. That we need to know where we are, we need to know what we have, and we need to know why we're there. We need to know where we are, what we have, and why we're there. So first of all, we need to know that we're in a wilderness, we need to actually know and recognize that we, the church, are in a wilderness. So, Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, says, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. Okay, now, remember kind of the framework that we've been working with when he says, and then something happened, right? Typically, he is not referring to, hey, this thing sequentially happened right after this last thing, right? It's not a chronological order thing like, hey, I know this thing just happened, now we're into a new thing, here's this new thing. 
All right. If you remember, last time we finished the seven trumpets, and at the end of the seven trumpets, we said there was this standard phrase, right, of lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. Hail That's like Revelation language for end of the world. So world ended, right? And so when he says, then I witnessed, he's not saying, then I witnessed something that happens after one end of the world. It's, hey, remember, we're looking at this from seven different angles of the same time frame, right? So this is a restart of the time frame. We're in a new section now, and he's restarting the time frame. So it's, then I witnessed, in the order in which I saw these visions, not in the order that necessarily they're going to happen. All right, so then I witnessed this new time frame. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. So, the question we need to ask is, who is this woman? Who is this woman? Well, there's a few options that have been laid out throughout church history, but there's some main ones. The options could be that this is referring to Eve. We're looking at Eve as a, either as a prototype of something or Eve herself, or Mary which is a, a much more popular view uh, that is Mary here, or what I'm going to argue is that the woman is the church. The church. Now, certainly there are uh, allusions to Eve and Mary who are types of the people of God, right? Just uh, Not that they're not real historical people. They very much are real historical people. Uh, but just like David in the Old Testament functions as a type of Jesus, Right? David's the king of God's people, and he functions as a type for God's king, Jesus. Uh, both Mary and Eve, at different points, function as types of the church whose offspring is the Messiah and those who are identified with him. So I'm going to argue, and I'll show you in a couple of little spots, that this is the church, that this woman is the church. Okay, so keep reading here. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads. So, remember, numbers are important. So we have a dragon. He's got seven heads. So he is attempting to have authority, right? He has crowns on his heads, which is a sign of authority. Now, dragon in the New Testament is never a good thing, right? Dragons aren't on the good side, uh, as we'll find out here in a moment. And horns, remember, is uh, there's this uh, uh, level of authority and power that comes with a horn. So he is a powerful dragon, and he is attempting to have authority. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to earth. Now, stars often represent either angels or uh, angels that represent saints, so it could be one, of the other, one or the other, but I think that this is referring to angels and could be referring to fallen angels uh, that sided with Satan himself. Uh, he stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1260 days. All right, so what's going on here? <laughs> what's going on 
in this section, right? This is what we got to establish every time. We've got to establish a little bit of like, okay, this is weird. What's happening here? Okay, it's okay. We'll just take it one little step at a time. So often dragons are associated in the Old Testament with an evil kingdom. Now, in this spot, it could be associated with an evil kingdom, but much more likely, he's actually referring to Satan himself, as we're going to see the, the place in which the dragon takes the rest of this chapter. Uh, now, this woman gives birth to a son that the dragon is trying to devour. Now, this son that is born was to rule all nations with an iron rod. Who do you think she's referring to? Then? To Jesus, Right? To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders, referring to Jesus, which is why people make a connection between this woman and Mary. That makes sense. Now, where you get into problems is like, okay, what does it mean that she was like fled into the wilderness for 1260 days? Because I don't think I remember reading that in the Gospels, but maybe that happened. You know, there's something maybe going on there. Uh, there is some Catholic doctrine built around this passage uh, referring to different things of Mary that, that we would disagree with. And so I, I don't think that that's what's happening here. Um, but this child was snatched away from the dragon. It was caught up to God and to his throne which I believe is referring to what John is referring to here is a shorthand for Jesus' ascension into heaven, right? After Jesus dies on the cross, he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. So when he refers to that this son was snatched away from the dragon and ascended into heaven, that's kind of a shorthand for the wholeness of Jesus' life on earth. Now remember, what we said about this book is it's taking these snapshots of these time frames and looking at them like a football play and the highlights after a football play, the replay, right? All these different angles. So to just say that the ascension is not to downplay any of the other work of Jesus in his first coming, it's just focusing on one aspect of it. But when you talk about one aspect of the work of Jesus, the whole thing is included in it. So to speak of the ascension... Right? Jesus rising into heaven, right? away from his disciples after the resurrection. That can't happen if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. Which can't happen if Jesus doesn't die on a cross. And so, what he's referring to is the whole work of Jesus in his first coming. That's another indicator for us that he is restarting this time frame. We're looking at this whole time frame again uh, that, that uh, the whole book is looking at the whole church age, between the first and second coming of Jesus. So you can speak of the whole work of Christ as coming from any of the individual parts of it. Now, if Mary is this woman, we've got to figure out what's going on with this being uh, flee, uh, fleeing into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her and what's going on with the 1260 days. Now, if you've been with us, right, you know 1260 days, that should ring a bell, right? It's the same as 42 months, and it's the same as what had happened in the last chapter. There was a reference to 1,260 days. It's also a reference to uh, this 42 months is three and a half years, which is a reference to the book of Daniel. When Daniel is talking about the end times, he refers to it as a time, times, and half a time, which is kind of a Hebrew way of saying three and a half years, Right? So, when referring to that is a marker referring to the entire age of the church, the end times. This is the way in which the book 
describes itself to us, right? Remember that the end times uh, is not just this tiny sliver at the end of uh, the world when Jesus returns again, but really refers to all the time period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So that 1260 days is referring to that whole time frame. Mary doesn't live that whole time frame, right? And so it's probably not referring specifically to her, okay? And what was referred to just recently about that same time frame? The two witnesses. Remember what we said about the two witnesses. The two witnesses represented the the church, the faithful church. Remember, there's seven churches that get letters at the front end. Only two are not admonished. Right? And so now we have these two witnesses who are the faithful church. So this woman is the faithful church. The same problems arise in terms of if we identify her too strongly with Eve, uh, in terms of what, what's going on with this wilderness time here and how do we understand that. But I think the point which fits the whole of the book is to say that the church is this woman and that the Messiah comes from the church, right? From the people of God. Remember that there is a promised son, a promised seed of Eve who will crush the serpent. That comes not through Eve herself, but through the people of God descended from Eve, right? And so Eve is a type of the coming people of God who will produce the Messiah, Jesus. Same with Mary. Mary is a type of that same thing. She's a participant in that same thing, right? So none of that is to downplay the significance of either Mary or Eve. They're both incredibly significant in the scriptures. But this is referring to a more corporate understanding of the church as producing the Messiah, as bringing the Messiah. And the church here is in the wilderness. The woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her. Now, what is the wilderness? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible story, the wilderness is a place where God's people often find themselves. In the Exodus, after being uh, delivered from uh, Egypt, they find themselves in the wilderness. The prophets speak of the wilderness. Jesus himself, after he is baptized, goes into the wilderness for 40 days, right? Which is representative of actually surviving the wilderness. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted by Satan. You see the connections that John is making here? That God is trying to communicate here? that The wilderness is this place in which the dragon, Satan, seeks to tempt and undermine the church. It's a place of suffering and desolation and testing. And yet, as we see throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as well, it is the place in which God nourishes and provides for His people. Right? An angel comes and ministers to Jesus in the wilderness. God provides manna for His people in the wilderness. It's one of the most consistent displays of God's provision to a stubborn people. They literally eat daily because God says, I will feed you. Even though you're stubborn. Even though the reason you're going to be here is because of your sin. 
I'm still going to provide for you. So this place, this wilderness place, is where the church is. And in order to survive in the wilderness, you have to know that you're there. You have to know that you're in the wilderness. Meaning, we're not avoiding suffering and difficulty. Remember, the point of this book is not to tell you when you will, like Jesus, be raptured out of this place and avoid the worst suffering. It's to prepare you to endure and be faithful in the midst of suffering. It's to prepare you to be faithful in the midst of the wilderness. So what wilderness do you find yourself in today? Do you find yourself in a wilderness because of the brokenness of the world around you? That there is just real brokenness surrounding us. This is a difficult place to live. The world is a difficult place. It feels more and more broken each day. Right? I mean, we feel this. We see this. Right? Remember earlier we talked about when, the, when we looked at the four horsemen and the things that they were bringing are all things that we're seeing. There's wars, there's famine, there's earthquakes. This is a hard place. It's the wilderness. And maybe your wilderness is intensified because of the sin of other people. Maybe you've been sinned against in the past. Faced abuse or other trauma. You've been sinned against by other people and it has led you into a wilderness place. Or maybe in the present, you've been sinned against recently and you are feeling as though you're in this place in which God is not present. You're in a wilderness. Or maybe you're facing some sort of uh, pressure or persecution from others. Some sort of suffering that others are inflicting upon you. Some sort of marginalization because you claim the name of Jesus. Certainly this is what the church globally does face. That we are brothers and sisters with. And so when it speaks of the woman, the wholeness of the church, the woman is in the wilderness And if our brothers and sisters are facing persecution and suffering and death because of their faith, we also are because we're united with them. We're not the ones experiencing it, but we ought to live in such a way knowing that they experience it and praying for them and feeling that, right? We are the church, which is, Paul says in other places, a body. If one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. So if one part of our body around the globe is suffering and we act like we don't experience any of it or have any concern for it, do we know that we're a part of that body? Right? If your toe gets slammed, if you step on a Lego, right? Talk about the wilderness. If you step on a Lego, you know this tiny little part of my body hurts, but my whole body hurts. Do we live like that as the church? With our global brothers and sisters suffering for the gospel? It's a good question for us to ask. Sometimes the wilderness for us is kind of like the wilderness for Israel. It's a wilderness of our own making. It's our own sin. Our stubbornness. Our refusal to repent of something God has clearly laid on our heart and shown us and we refuse to repent and then we wonder why we don't feel God's presence. Because we're refusing to repent. 
We're in this wilderness place in which we're dealing with the consequences of our own sinful actions. And we don't know how to handle it. You need to know, if you're going to survive the wilderness, you need to know you're in it. If you're a part of the church, you're in the wilderness. Now, that's not enough. We need to know, actually, what do we have in the wilderness, right? Did we get ten items that we got to take with us? Like, what sort of items did we get to take with us in the wilderness if we're going to survive? Well, let's see if we can discover what John tells us. Then there was war in heaven. Now, then, again, remember, then is not chronological necessarily, but this is just what John sees. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, see, he specifically identifies who this dragon is. The one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Now, this is an important caveat. The one who is deceiving the whole world. We're going to get to that in a moment. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, remember, another just... just I'm drilling this point over and over again because some of the most fundamental mistakes we make in the book of Revelation is we just read it like a chronological book. But remember what just happened in chapter 11. What did it say? The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So in 11, he says, the world has now become the kingdom of our God. In 12, he says, it has come at last, the kingdom of our God. So wait, is the whole world the kingdom of God or is the kingdom of God just now coming? Well, it's just now coming because we've reset this time frame. Remember, chapter 11 was at the end of the seven trumpets. It was the end of the world. It was when Jesus is coming again. And now John is referring to Jesus' first coming in which the kingdom of God has come. Salvation and power has come. And they have defeated him uh, these, the, ones, uh, the ones that he accuses, right? The one who accuses them, the brothers and sisters, before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens, rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in a great anger, knowing that he has little time. All right, so salvation, power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. When Jesus first shows up on the scene in Mark 1, he says this, the time promised by God has come at last. He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is part of Jesus' announcement. It's here, it's coming. So what John is referring to is this first coming of Jesus and his work on the cross. His work on the cross for us, right? It refers to the blood of the Lamb. And that's how those who are accused by Satan conquer Him, is by the blood of the Lamb. This first coming of Jesus, the work of Jesus on our behalf. What does that give us to survive the wilderness? What does that actually give us? 
Well, what does John refer to here? He says, the accuser has been thrown down. The accuser can no longer accuse. Right? Satan was forced out. The accuser of our brother who accuses them day and night before our God has been defeated. How has that been? Well, there, we get a picture of what this could look like in the book of Zechariah. A prophetic picture of this same image. Then the angel showed me Jeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Jeshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the other standing there, Take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Jeshua, he said, See, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. How is the angel of the Lord able to do that? That's a prophetic vision of what Jesus accomplishes for us to which John is referring. You see, the gospel allows us in the wilderness to survive because our greatest enemy has been disarmed. Our greatest enemy has been disarmed. The strongest weapon that Satan has to offer, that Satan has to use, is your sin, my sin, and God's holiness. This is the strongest weapon Satan has. He doesn't have to use his own weapons. God is holy and you're not. All I got to do is say, God, do you see this? Like, God, do you see what's going on? These people that you claim to be your own, they're not very good at following you. They're really bad at it, actually. They're really sinful. And what was the high priest? The high priest. The high priest, the one that should be the holiest. He was filthy. And yet, the Lord said, no, I rebuke you, Satan. I'm going to give him clean clothes. I'm going to take away his sin. Jesus coming to the earth, Jesus coming to die in your place has removed any accusation Satan could offer against you. You are in the midst of the wilderness, but do you know what? Your greatest enemy has been completely disarmed. He can accuse you day and night over and over again. You can agree with his accusations. Yes, you're right. I told God that I would obey him in this thing. I told him this is the last time I'm going to sin like this. And that was yesterday and I did it again today. Maybe, maybe, I'm, is that just me that does that? Okay. All right, all right. Just wondering, right? Like, we can agree with him. And you know Why? Because your power has been removed. We can defeat Him by the blood of the Lamb. You have been fully forgiven. What John is trying to show you in vivid imagery is what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. When he says, the accuser has been thrown out of heaven. God won't even listen to his accusations anymore. 
Why? Because he already paid for all of the sin that his people will ever commit. Past, present, future. All of it has been paid. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now what does this have to do with surviving in the wilderness? How does this work? How does this help us survive the wilderness? Well, if you're in the wilderness because of your own sin, if you're in this place of brokenness in which you don't know where God is, you can know that your sin has already been dealt with. So you can freely repent and trust in Jesus because your sin has already been dealt with. It's already gone. Your enemies, Satan, death, and sin have been destroyed. Meaning that you are not fighting against flesh and blood. You don't have to worry about what other people bring against you because you're not fighting against flesh and blood. You're fighting against principalities and the forces of evil. And those have already been destroyed. They're already done. You have already won. It's 100% certain and over. So the wilderness is so much easier to survive. Right? Imagine if at the beginning of the next season of Alone, they were like, hey, by the way, you're going to win. You're going to win. You are certain to win. You will survive. Now, you have to actually go and do it, but it's certain that it will be done. That's the position you are in as the church. You will survive to the end. You will make it. Jesus will make certain of it. Now go do it. Right? We still got to struggle in it. We still got to walk through it. But Jesus has already guaranteed it for us. It's already guaranteed. Which means there is no more shame that plagues us. Or there should be no more shame. We still struggle with it, but we can defeat it by the blood of the Lamb and by clinging to Jesus. Because we are secure. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that statement that there is no condemnation is not true for you. It said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That implies that if you're not within Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. The accusations of Satan are true. You are sinful. And you do deserve judgment. And God is holy. So flee to Jesus. Because it can be true for you. It can be true for you. He has done everything necessary. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything. You just have to receive it. Just have to receive it. So repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Turn from your efforts to earn God's love and just freely take it. And if you're a Christian here this morning, renew your faith in the good news of Jesus. The thing that you need to survive the wilderness is already done for you. It's already done for you. 
It's Jesus. That's the way we survive it. That's what we have. We have everything we need because of the blood of the Lamb. So we don't have to love our lives so much that we're not willing to endure death. Because Jesus has already purchased for us an eternal life with Him and with the Father in the new heavens and new earth. We're getting there. We're going to get there. John's going to get us there to show us what it's like. And when we see what it's like, you know where Paul goes in Romans 8? He goes into saying, once, like, the glory that is to come, we can endure any suffering because it does not even closely compare to the glory that is to come that Jesus has already secured for us. And Satan has been thrown down, right? This reference to Satan being thrown down uh, here, when the dragon realized that he had been thrown... Oh, sorry. Maybe I... Oh, it's not in here. It's fine. Uh, when, when Jesus sends out his disciples, remember they come back. You know what he says? He says, I saw in heaven, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have now given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Now, what Jesus is not saying is go walk among actual snakes and serpents and get bit because you will die. (laughs) Right? Like that will happen. He's referring to the spiritual forces at work in the world. The deceptive power of Satan will not affect you because Jesus has thrown him down. Jesus' first coming, Satan is disarmed against the church. Now, the final thing that we need is to know why we're in the wilderness. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Again, time, times, half a time. Three and a half years. Reference to that. Also a reference to the Exodus, in which God describes saving his people like eagle's wings, right? It's referring to the same thing, right? It's the wilderness people that God is referring to here. The church, the people of God in the wilderness. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth, but the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. Probably referencing here the Exodus event as well, when they walk through right the sea, and the earth itself helps to protect the people of God. Referencing that to say, Satan can throw anything he wants at you, and Jesus will protect you. Jesus will protect you. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Right? Referring to the woman as the church, the global church, the the institution of the church, the global collective people of God, and also the individual Christians. Right? All who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. So both the corporate aspect of the church and the individual aspect of Christians is at work here. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. And then things get wild in a moment. That's next week. (laughs) Beasts coming out of the sea, all sorts of crazy stuff, right? We're getting there. That's next week. 
But here's the thing that I want us to see. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon. Who has prepared this place for her? Who is going to care for her? God is. You see, God has sent us to the wilderness. And he has sent us to the wilderness not to destroy us, but to protect you. Now you might think, how? Why? Like, that, that's a bad plan, Lord. If you were going to protect me, you'd send me to a hotel, not the wilderness, right? A keep, a castle. The wilderness? That's not a place of protection. Remember, throughout the book of Revelation, and indeed throughout the whole Bible, the place of difficulty, the place of oppression, the place of suffering, that's the place that God shows up. Remember the warnings to the church in the early parts of this book? The warnings to resist the temptation to side with Babylon. Why would we do that? Why would we side with Babylon? Babylon's going to lose. Because it's nice in Babylon. It's not the wilderness. It's comfortable there. My conscience doesn't bother me because it, I, I can do whatever I want. It's hard. My conscience is hard. It, it's not softened by God's Word. I can do whatever I want and it doesn't bother me at all. It lets me do what I want. So often as Christians here in America, we look for outward signs of blessing as evidence that God is at work and for us. But what if it's sometimes it's the opposite? What if the sign that God's activity is in you and for you is you being preserved in the hard place, in the wilderness place? Not in the place of blessing, but in the place of suffering and difficulty. Now, why would God do that? Because prosperity and comfort often lead us to being complacent. Often lead us to being puffed up and neglecting repentance. And the purifying work of God through the wilderness is to strip everything away so that we can cling only to Him. God does this because He loves us. One of my favorite places in the scriptures for understanding this concept in the book of, uh, and, and the understanding of the wilderness is the book of Hosea. In Hosea, the Lord says this, but then I will win her back once again. Speaking of Israel, his people, his bride. Hosea is uh, told to, to marry this woman who leaves him, right? And it's a prophetic picture of whether it's a figurative thing or an actual thing, it's a prophetic picture of what the people of God have done to their God. They have left him. What does he say he's going to do? I will lead her into the desert, into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. O Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips and you will never mention them again. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so that they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so that you can live unafraid. 
in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. Maybe you're in the wilderness. And maybe instead of looking for God to show you a way out of the wilderness, you need to look around and see God with you in the wilderness. Knowing the why of the wilderness is not knowing the reason and the particular like purpose, like the secret purpose that God has for my specific suffering in this moment. That's not what I'm talking about, knowing the why. It's about knowing who you are and whose you are. Knowing that you are the bride of Christ and that you belong to Christ. You are there because he's there wanting you. He's there speaking tenderly to you. He actually drew you there. Now, Satan may have been used. Your enemies may have been used. Your own sin may have been used. Others' sin against you may have been used. The brokenness of the world may have been used. Your anxiety and depression, your shame and self-loathing, all of it may have been used to get you to the wilderness, but that's not why you're there. The enemy meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I'm not saying that those things are good. No, they're actually evil things. But God takes evil things and turns them for good. God's there to meet us in the wilderness. Those things may draw us there, but it is ultimately God who is there to meet us in the wilderness, to woo us away from Babylon, away from America, away from prosperity, away from idolatry, away from everything to Him, to Himself. To survive the wilderness, you may not be able to run out of it, you may have to stay in it and find Jesus there because that's where he is. He's there to speak tenderly to you, to call you his own, to draw you away from anything else because what you need more than anything else is to know that you, church, are the bride of Christ, that he loves you and adores you like a husband who loves his wife. That's what Jesus is doing in the wilderness place. He's taking us there. And we have to endure there. But not just endure, but actually experience him in that place. We're in a hard place. That's true. But Satan has been thrown down. He can no longer accuse because Jesus has done a mighty work on our behalf. But it's not just that Jesus did a mighty work on our behalf. He is present with us in the suffering to help us endure. So church of Jesus Christ, let's endure in this wilderness place because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we ask that you would be present with us. Some of us are in really, really hard places. We keenly know that we're in the wilderness. Others of us feel like we're not in the wilderness at all, and maybe, Lord, we need to be awoken to see so that we could have our eyes open to see where we are 
to repent of sin if necessary, and to recognize your work in the world. Wherever we're at, Lord Jesus, would you come by your Spirit and would you speak tenderly to us? Would you remind us that we are yours, that you love us, that you adore us? Jesus, would you help us to conquer by the blood of the Lamb so that we would love not love our lives so much that we're not willing to die, to honor you, to love enemy, to love neighbor, and to love you, Jesus. Jesus, would you make us faithful and help us to endure to the end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.